We share the, the same love, the, the love of film. And now what I'm about to say probably will stir up a lot of conversation around over the country. You commie, homo-loving sons of guns. It's not about you. It's about these characters. They are two of the finest gay Americans, two wonderful men. And I am greatly honored and tremendously moved. Don't let anybody tell you this isn't a terrific thrill. It would be a lie if I told you I didn't know what to say because I've been working on this speech for about 25 years. Well, it's my privilege. Thank you. And welcome back to the final season of Academy Queens, your LGBT guide through the Academy Awards per decade, per category. If I were a rich man, I am Joy Gentile. And I scared your daddy into getting rich. I'm Brandon Stanwick. Look at that theme we had for our opening, talking about getting rich. And daddies. Daddies and men. Welcome back. Final season. Things are going to be a little different this time. We are just going with the flow more than usual. We've got some surprises going on. Brandon, this is our first episode since we saw each other back in June when we recorded with the oh-so-wonderful-ish Ryan McQuaid. How the hell are you? Pretty good. Uh, Looking forward to this episode. We've talked about this year a couple of times now, and uh, I think we decided back when you were here in Texas that we've talked about every aspect of this year besides the men. So if we were going to do a farewell season, we had to make sure that it included the men of 1971 just to put it to rest very much so it's kind of weird how this has always been a cornerstone year for us makes no sense i don't get it i know we have done director and picture and actress do you remember your winners so you want to refresh the children yeah so with um lead actress i am team glenda jackson Uh, here for Sunday, Bloody Sunday. And um, for supporting, um, when we recorded, I went with uh, Ellen Burstyn because I was really feeling it. But these days, I'm a little bit more Cloris Leachman. Um, Let's see. For director, I believe I went with Bogdanovich. And also Last Picture Show for picture, I think. I'm really bad at remembering how I selected things because... uh, my mind's always kind of changing, given, you know, new life experience and learning new things as time goes on. But I think those were my winners. Did you say picture? I'm sorry. I heard you say Bogdanovich. I, I think it was last picture show for both. I do believe you are correct. Because I know you're a fan of Sunday, Bloody Sunday, and with not that not being in picture, I think you commented on that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't change. Oh, I, I mean, let me let me rephrase that. I have a regret of giving someone an Academy Award. And I think I said this on the show at some point, And that was right after we did 1998 when I was like, I should have gone Kathy Bates. But other than that, I don't usually change or at all my winners. So I know mine have stayed the same way back in our first season. Actually, kind of our season premiere because we did 70 and 71 together. 
um, my supporting actress winner was Barbara Harris for who is Harry Kellerman and why is he saying those terrible things about me? I still will never forget when I <laughs> when I was when I told you don't worry about watching the movie, just watch the last you know 15 minutes where she's in it, and then you're like, I should have just listened to you. <laughs> I had to watch the whole thing. I, I would have felt like I cheated if I didn't. I know, I know. So that was fun. Um, and then best actress, Janet Sussman, Nicholas and Alexandra will always stand for that woman. She is so good in there. So that she was my winner. Uh, director, I went with Norman Jewison for Fiddler on the Roof. Um, however, picture, I went with Nicholas and Alexandra, which was the hardest decision I ever did on the show um, over Fiddler on the Roof. But my reason was very simple. It was... While I love Fiddler, and we're going to get to talk about the men of Fiddler here today, um, it was just nuts because Nicholas and Alexandra was the last of those type of films with the big, broad, epic kingdom royalty films that were huge in the 60s and really died with this one. So, you know, it was it's so unique for the, its time. And it's 50 years old. All these movies, they're 50 years old this year. We're celebrating. So half a century, bitches. Here you go. But uh, but yeah, so it just shows you I'm not biased. It's not always Fiddler. Mm. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for your support. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, buddy, this is it. The next six episodes, six months. First one down, we've got some interesting people guessing some interesting uh, guesses for us. I'm very intrigued to see where we're actually going to go. Um, who do you think I'm going to choose for supporting actor and uh, actor here? Um, supporting actor is tricky. Uh, I think I'm going to go with Roy Scheider for French Connection. That's really just a shot in the dark because I'm really, I'm not really drawn to either of these five for you i know you're a big fiddler fan in general but i don't know how you feel about leonard frey but i'm just gonna go with roy scheider just because um lead uh i guess i guess just topol just cuz i love that you're like just cuz um supporting actor i genuinely don't know with you because i know you're a big fan of last picture show but i also know that this is the first time that you have seen sometimes a great notion. I actually really kind of pushed for this episode as well because someone like Richard Jekyll is a very forgotten nominee and I don't hear or read much about him. So I'm like, let's talk about him. Um, I I don't know. I, I don't. I remember you said that you had, when we did the 71 picture that it was the first time you had seen Fiddler. So I also don't know your thoughts on Leonard Fry. Yeah. This is a shot in the dark here as well, but you know what? I'm I'm going to say something about your first watch of Sometimes a Great Notion hit you. Richard Jekyll, I, I would be very pleasantly surprised if that was for you, so I'm going to go for it. I'm going to think maybe you're thinking outside the box for yourself here. Um, best actor, also kind of hard. You're a huge Sunday Bloody Sunday fan, and rightfully so. Um, I also know that you enjoyed... Fiddler, so that could be Topple. I don't know your feelings on the hospital yet, so I, I don't know. I'm going to go with my gut and say Peter Finch for Sunday. Sunday Bloody Sunday and uh, Richard Jekyll for Sometimes a Great Notion. Okay, cool. 
I just feel all types of emotion on this one. Um, but without further ado, let's just dive right in. Um, your, as a reminder, your supporting actors of 1971 were Jeff Bridges in the Last Picture Show, Leonard Fry in Fiddler on the Roof, Richard Jekyll in Sometimes a Great Notion, Ben Johnson in the Last Picture Show, and Roy Scheider in The French Connection. All right, let us start off this year with Leonard Fry in Fiddler on the Roof. He is playing Model the Tailor. This is his sole nomination. Um, going into Oscar night, nothing. He was a – well, a lot of these people here were a surprise nominee except for one person. Um, but he was a bigger surprise nominee for Fiddler on the Roof as originally Paul Mann for uh, playing Lazar Wolf was the quote-unquote shoe-in for the supporting actor nomination – garnering the Golden Globe nomination. But in Fiddle on the Roof, again, Leonard plays Model the Taylor, who is in love with Tevia's eldest daughter um, as they are childhood friends and needs to prove that he is a man capable in Jewish tradition of taking care of his family. Something that Tevia doesn't approve, especially because he did not pick her, neither did the matchmaker. So Brandon, let's talk. Leonard Fry, Model the Taylor, Fiddle on the Roof, you're up. So I um I think he's pretty good here in uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, this is, you know, like you had said earlier, this is a movie that I came to pretty recently. Um, it's not one that I really grew up with. It wasn't exactly, you know, a staple in uh, my household growing up. But um, I can see why some people might forget about him in the grand scheme of things, uh, because his character is more, I guess you could say, reserved and um, somewhat earnest. And I think it works because of who he's playing opposite of with uh, Topol, who is so large as Tevia and so full of life and vigor. Uh, they balance each other out pretty well. And um, you can see why someone like Tevia might be so hesitant to marry his daughter off to someone like uh model is that how you say it um model. so yeah so um i think he does pretty well by creating this uh really down to earth sort of romantic figure for um tevia's daughter and um i think he he takes a character who very easily could be um sort of a blend into the background kind of guy and he manages to stand out in a way, um, perhaps because, you know, Leonard Fry is pretty big, you know, Broadway guy from back in the day. Um, so he was uh, in the original Boys in the Band, I believe, and a few other notable productions from, you know, the 60s and 70s. So uh, he, you could say he was a bit of a pro, but you might not realize it considering how, um, I guess, naturalistic you could say his performance is. He doesn't really draw him, um, attention to himself in any sort of a selfish way. Um, he seems to be in service of the film he's in, as opposed to thinking, you know, that the film and the, and the rest of the cast ought to support him, which I think is a really great um, sign of a, of a strong supporting player. So overall, I'd say um, I like him. I am 
genuinely always confused by this nomination um, with my love of Fiddler and my connection of doing it as a kid and it becoming my first stage show and like genuinely being my favorite musical. I don't really understand how this happened. Um, Maybe, and I can admit this, maybe it is a bias having played Lazar Wolf on the stage because there's his role is a little smaller than models, but it's juicier. Like there's a lot more meat to chew on. Um, you know, I also genuinely think that Leonard Fry here, while he's really good, he's a New York stage actor. He also would have been the first openly gay actor to win an Oscar for acting. Um, you know, he wonders of wonders, miracles of miracles is the worst goddamn number in that show. Um, I it it just feels so left field. I am just I don't know. I'm always baffled by this because it, he never feels like he fits in the mold. Now I remember talking to you about when we were doing Best Picture, and I always and I had said something about this movie. There's always someone who feels so miscast here. And you're like, I think I know who it is. And I'm like, I bet you don't. And you're, and I said, well, who do you think it is? And I think you said Raymond Lovelock, who played Fiedka. And I think that was who you said, or maybe it was the guy who played Perchik, Paul Michael Glazer. It was, it was one of the Paul two. Michael Glazer. Yes. Paul Michael Glazer, for some reason, doesn't seem to match everyone else in this movie for me. Yes, and I wanted to say so because we I, we didn't know if we were ever going to get to this episode. And so just in case that we did it or that we got to do it, that this is who I was referring to. Something about Fry's presence here makes him feel un, not unwanted, not needed. I don't know. There's something about him that just feels very off to me. Like he's almost trying too hard. And maybe maybe that's what Norman Jewison wanted from from model come <laughs> model come Zoyle. but I have seen this production and this many times on stage and you know every actor has a different thing but the one thing that I've always noticed that ties model together on stage is his presence he's got a very stark stern little timid kind of like a Dorothy Ann Gale um feel to him but Fry just seems to be way too childish for me. And so it just doesn't work. Um, but yeah, I just think this could have, this really could have been something special if Paul Mann was here for Laser Wolf. Um, I think he's doing a lot more to earn a supporting actor nomination. And, and I know that from my research, it actually like made him not want to pursue Hollywood as much after that, because that was Paul Mann's second Golden Globe nomination that was supposed to quote unquote supposed to turn into an Oscar nomination it never did so he got very disheartened by the industry um for his work but uh yeah I I'm confused by this nomination I don't get it yeah my knowledge of Fiddler is pretty much um limited to this uh film I've never seen it on stage or any other adaptation I wonder how much um 
Leonard Fry's own just personal reputation and notability for the time may have led to a nomination. Um, being, you know, pretty reputable guy for the time. Uh, maybe he was just someone that people had seen on stage, people liked him, things like that. You know, it's never, it's almost never just the performance that leads to nominations and things like that. Um, but I can kind of see where you're coming from with his performance, because there is sort of a boyish insecurity to his performance that I think is intentional. I don't think there's any insecurity coming from Fry himself. I think that's just what he's bringing to this character. And for me, that makes sense, considering what um, Tevya is dishing out. Um, I think they're they're a good match for each other, a sort of yin and yang. And um, the more opposite they are, it makes even more sense to me why Tevya's daughter would be attracted to him. So um, I can see why some of his choices might be a little confounding to some viewers who might have a little more familiarity with the story. But for me, it makes sense. Um, so I'm not that confused as to why he got a nomination, but um, I guess uh, I guess it just it all kind of tracks for me in a way. Yeah, for sure, for sure. You know, I I will always love Fiddler. I will always love what the show has done um, and sparking the that that little light inside me. Um, love the characters, but this is I just wish better for this nomination. I think that's it. Um, but yeah, uh, do note, I would like to uh, tip my hat, though, to Leonard Fry. Um, we did uh, lose him in 1988 at the age of 49 to complications from AIDS. So he was a victim of that pandemic. And uh, rest in peace, my dude. Rest in peace. All right, all right. Moving on uh, to Jeff Bridges in The Last Picture Show. He plays Dwayne Jackson. This is his first of seven nominations. Going into Oscar night, he has um, absolutely no precursors. So here is another quote-unquote surprise uh, nomination in The Last Picture Show. Again, Jeff plays Dwayne, who is the boyfriend to Sonny, played uh, by Sybil Shepard. Um, who is quote unquote the bad good boy in town? Uh, they take a they're on a road trip to Mexico. They end up at a motel where there could be an orgy. They try to lose their virginities together. Whole bunch of shit goes down. Let's talk. So, um, for some reason, uh, Jeff Bridges, I don't find his performance all that interesting in this movie. Um, I think if, when you watch Last Picture Show. You can definitely see the the persona that Jeff Bridges would um, go on to be so known for. Um, those building blocks are certainly there on display. But when you have this other, uh, all, with the rest of this cast surrounding him, who are all doing some very interesting things, I, I just don't find Bridges as um, compelling as anyone else, um, especially when he's op um, acting opposite um, Sybil Shepherd, places uh, romantic interest, uh, JC. Um, I think she's fabulous. Uh, Timothy uh, um, Bottoms, I think, is quite good 
in here um, as Sonny. And any any basically any scene that Jeff Bridges is in, I'm more interested in what his scene partner is doing than he is. I'm not sure if that's because I came to this movie already with a firm understanding of Jeff Bridges' uh, very specific idiosyncrasies. Um, I can imagine how viewers in 1971 who basically didn't know him yet, how they could see him um, and basically be um, a little bit blown away by this new um, incoming talent. So I wonder how I wonder how differently this performance plays for people who are familiar with him versus not familiar with him. But um, unfortunately, I think uh, Jeff Bridges being so is his having his star persona so established maybe um, is working against me as a viewer and maybe always I think always has because when I did see this movie I I of course knew him from a slew of other things that he had done so um, I think he's he's good here I'm not gonna you know say he's bad I just think I I just don't think he's as interesting as everyone around him if that makes sense Absolutely. And I want to correct myself here earlier when I said Sonny was played by Sybil Shepard. It, it is JC, obviously. I, the road trip thing and the boyfriend girl, I just got tongue tied there. So sorry about that. Um, but I 100% agree what you're saying. Um, I revisiting this recently, like, you know, I, I do my homework, even if I know for me, if I like a film or not, like I, I will revisit it. And I just don't understand this nomination either. Um, there's this thing about Jeff Bridges, and I think I have said this before, where I just feel like his nominated performances blend together. Um, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot is such a fun one that we had dis- – we discussed that one, right? What was that, 70, 70 – Yeah, we did. Yeah. 74? Yeah, 74. Like, that one was really fun, and I remember saying, like, that I was so surprised by him, because that's where I said it. Yeah, I was so surprised by Jeff Bridges in that one, because usually it his stuff blends together. But for some reason, I don't know why, even revisiting this again, I could see parts of Heller High Water and even Crazy Heart and True Grit in on this young kid. And maybe it's just because of my, you know... Predisp- what is it? Pre- what is it? What, what's that word? Predeposition or predisposition or something? Predisposed. Uh, words. Words are just not happening. Predisposed. Today. Something like that. It's like where I know what to expect from him down the line. That's the word I'm looking for. But anyway, um, yeah, it's just there's always there's always something more interesting happening around him. So I wonder if this nomination is more of a love of the Academy having for the last picture show than it actually is Jeff Bridges. What are your thoughts on that? Well, they definitely had a fondness for the film itself, but um, maybe maybe the um, seeing the, the dawn of this uh, charisma, this star power that he would go on to have was something that people just felt back then. So, I mean, we're, we've basically been saying that we watch this movie and we see his other performances. And um, that, that's kind of a good thing and a bad thing in a way. Um, 
depending on how you view and assess acting. So um, maybe people back then could just, they watched this performance and they could see that he was a star in the making. And, you know, whether, whether, regardless of your thoughts on Jeff Bridges, he, he would go on to become one of the biggest stars from his, his generation. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I agree that I just don't find him quite as interesting. Uh, I think it's kind of funny. If you, if you watch this movie, I don't, I find it hard to believe that someone would guess that Dwayne is the character who Larry McMurtry would go on to write like five more books about. Cause like Larry McMurtry continued to return to this town over the course of his writing career. And there's like characters who come and go and things like that. And they're all sort of like connected in this uh, interesting way. And Dwayne is like a featured or starring character in like five or six of Larry McMurtry's novels. Like the, the dude felt a connection to this character and continued to develop him over decades. And I think it's so funny because I, I don't know, I don't think I would ever have guessed that that was the character based on what we're given in the movie. I probably would have guessed maybe Sonny. I don't know. But um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a strange one. I'm, I'm genuinely interested in how people who have no idea who Jeff Bridges is view this versus the people who, you know, like us, who come to it with a firm knowledge of who he is. Um, it's just a very curious thing considering, you know, the the magnetism that he has just as a person. Yeah. Yeah. I curious too. Did you ever, did you ever ever end up seeing Texasville, the sequel in between the last time we talked about this and now? No, I've never seen or read Texasville, but that's one of the, you know, Larry McMurtry's books that he wrote to continue Dwayne's journey. Yeah. I'd be interested to, is it weird that even though I don't like this film, like I'd be interested in seeing Texas film because I'm just like, I kind of am just that curious to see what they do with this. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in seeing it. It's just not something that I just have never really gotten around to, but um, yeah, I mean, Jeff Bridges and Sybil Shepard and Timothy Bottoms all um, came back for it. So, and it's like 20 years later or something. So yeah. Kind of cool. Yeah. All right, let us move on to Richard Jekyll in Sometimes a Great Notion, a forgotten Paul Newman-directed directing job. Um, in the film, uh, Richard plays Joe Ben, one of the brothers, um, and while well, the brother to Hank, played by Paul Newman, son to Henry by Henry Fonda, brother-in-law to Lee Remick's uh, character Viv, and it's the story about Oregonian um, lumberjacks and pretty much trying to avoid the union and doing their own thing that eventually, uh, we talk spoilers in this, but spoiler alert, that ends up um, their ignorance of avoiding um, safety precautions uh, not only hurts the town financially because they're just so, you know, gung-ho about the way old-time life should be, um, but also ends up being very um, fatal for Richard Jekyll's character of Joe Ben in the end. Um, there's also a return of a lost brother, Leland, played by Michael Sarazen, uh, who comes back to town, 
And uh, Brandon, let's talk sometimes a great notion. Again, very forgotten, very kind of hard to find, but it is available now on YouTube in HD. Um, and kind of the coolest house I've ever seen on location uh, for a movie. So what are your thoughts? So this is an interesting little movie. Um, I have a feeling it works better as literature, uh, you know, based on a novel by uh, Ken uh, Kesey, um, did a One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, there were just times when I was watching it where I felt like what we were probably given on the page just makes more sense for the story than what we're seeing on screen. Um, but I think it's a pretty good um, use of its performers. Um, these folks all kind of get to give these uh, very uh, down-home, very lived-in type of performances. Like, I get the impression that these folks have known each other for a long time, um, you know, when they're acting opposite each other. Uh, doesn't feel like they're putting on much of a show in a way. And um, I think uh, Jekyll is uh, pretty good here. Um, he gives a very solid, reliable, uh, sort of best friend, sidekick type of performance that doesn't really draw too much attention to itself most of the time. Um, I'd say for the majority of his screen time, he's just kind of there. Um, being supportive and i don't mean that in like a dismissive sort of way um, meaning that like he's bad by any means he's just simply you know doing his job um which makes what happens to him all the more devastating um because i mean i guess we can just go ahead and spoil this like what 40 50 year old movie i can't do math today i guess 50 yeah and uh Basically, a, a, a tree collapses on him while they're, like, in a river, and he's, like, slowly drowning as the the water level is rising, and they can't get him out from under this giant tree. And um, that sequence goes on for a long time. Um, like, when the tree falls on him, I didn't think he was going to survive another like 15, 20 minutes or however long it is. It feels like a long time anyway. And it's not because it's boring. It's just Paul Newman as the director really puts in the time to um, let these two characters um, bond. And uh, Joe, Ben, um, the way he accepts death as it's coming and he knows there's nothing they can do is, I don't know, it's, it sounds twisted to say, but it's kind of beautiful in a way um, because he doesn't play the role the way you would think someone would. Like he's not flailing and panicking and whatnot. It's almost like he's just accepted the nature of what has happened over time. And it's really his friend, um, you know, played by Paul Newman, who really has to grapple with um the gravity of the situation and uh that choice is just so interesting and i was just on the edge of my seat the entire time um because i i never really thought that he would live like the movie never really tries to trick you into thinking that oh maybe he'll get out you pretty much know what's going to happen it's just a matter of when 
and the movie takes its fucking time um, very well, I would say. And um, a lot of that is a testament to the acting, uh, Newman and um, Jekyll. So um, it does, yeah, he's a performance where it doesn't seem like he's doing much for the first like three quarters of the movie besides, you know, just being the reliable um, side character. But um, that last, I don't even know how much time it is, that last quarter of the movie he's in, um, it's pretty kind of intense in a low key sort of way. I, I kind of dig it. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying, too. Um, the word I think I would have used to describe his death scene is, like, weirdly, beautifully poetic. Um, I should say the words. Um, the thing about this film that really struck me the first time I had seen it, and then I had only seen it a second time rewatching it for today, um, despite the time that this was built or th that this film was made, there's something that feels like it can fit in today's society in the U.S. with what, we, you know, we go through in the last, or what we've gone through in, like, the last four years and just in general in my adulthood life, like, you know, people just not wanting to update the way of living and yada, yada, yada. Um, You know, there's the Henry Fonda character whose son comes back and you know every other word out of his mouth is that fairy that queer and the character's not even gay he just has long hair you know like the, there's very much that way of person today in you know modern day life and then i you know you have the the, the lee remick character who you know at first you may think it's just like the side wife quote-unquote canon character but is really kind of the voice of reason and needs to speak up and when she does you know it, it could be too late yada 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 so it, i mean there's there's a lot going on here i'm also always shocked that how quote-unquote hard to find this is um being paul newman i'm surprised you know criterion or someone like what is it kino lober hasn't picked this up to preserve this because there is some really interesting work happening from everyone here um again the location is beautiful as someone who lived in seattle and would frequent oregon there are many parts of oregon that look like this and i think the pacific northwest is for oregon is captured very beautifully here um that house i god what a dream it would be to have your own mini island that you have to get a like away from everyone that is literally only ac accessible by a boat like stay the fuck away from me because that is gorgeous um and that house actually still stands true story so there's that now getting to richard jekyll here he is a character actor who very forgotten unfortunately um a lot of tv work some stage work um you know uh very much what i think would he pretty much like the John Hawks of that era? Um, never really got his dues, had his Oscar nomination. That was the height of his career. Um, this nomination is, I think, wonderful. It is, there's so much. You are very correct when you say, like, this character is kind of like the sidekick character up until a certain point. You know, um, there's so much little small nuances he's doing. Um, the first one that really stuck out to me is 
kind of near the beginning, right after the brother character of Leland comes back and they wake up at 4 a.m., you know, to get to work. And Joe Ben's wife is like, are the kids sleeping? Come in. And he realizes that she, she that she's like, come into the bathroom. We're going to have sex. He's like, oh, yeah. And it's like his reaction is so natural. And I, and then from there on out, it's like little things at the breakfast table. And then while they're while they're working. But, you know, it is really the end where his character gets trapped under the uh the, the log that it is truly where he gets to shine. And it's so funny that you mentioned, you're like, I never thought that he wouldn't, that, that he would uh, survive this. There's a moment for me in my first watch where I was like, Oh my God, is he going to get it? Maybe he actually will. No. Um, and you know, Paul Newman really sells that ending. And there's that haunting image of Richard Jekyll underneath the water looking up. And I'm just like, God, that would be such a shitty way to go. Um, they say that drowning is more painful than burning. And I'm like, I couldn't even imagine that would suck so bad. Um, but yeah, I think this is a really good nomination and it's kind of sucks. That it's forgotten, but it's only forgotten because it's very inaccessible of a film to, you know, get. So, uh, it is what it is at this point, I guess. And there is a book. I'd be very interested in reading that book by, uh, Ken, Ken Kesey. So there is that. Yeah, I, I have a feeling the movie might even play better on rewatch, like having a foundational knowledge of what's um, what it's about and what's going on, because um, there's um, an unassuming nature to the way Paul Newman tells this story. Like he seems to be a pretty selfless director. Like of all the things I've seen him direct, he doesn't really ever try to create like a style or like a Paul Newman brand as a director he just kind of lets things play out and not in like a messy or convoluted way but in a but in a very like organized and well-paced sort of way like a very deliberately made way without really trying to um steal the spotlight as a as a filmmaker and i think that unassuming nature um blends over into the cast and um, Jekyll is, I think, a pretty good example of that, because for for the longest time, you're not really drawn to him in any specific sort of way, aside from those little details you mentioned that he throws in every now and then, until you know it kind of becomes his show when he's uh, moments from drowning, and yeah, that underwater moment is really hard to watch. Um, because you've been given so much character development, even in the final moments of his life, that when it finally happens and he is completely submerged underwater, um, it's it's kind of hard to stomach. Um, so all all the elements that make this movie work really come together in that in that moment. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah. Like I said, one of the big reasons why I wanted to, when I when we were talking about episodes of doing for this final season, like what would what want to do, and it was, you know, this again specific nomination because I'm like no one talks about it, so glad we had the moment to do it. I'm glad that you uh you got to experience it, and there we go. All right, moving on then to Roy Scheider as Buddy Russo in The French Connection. This is his first of two nominations, his second nomination, 
would come in 1979 for Best Actor for All That Jazz, who ends up being my winner that year. Um, so there's that. So very interested to talk about Roy Scheider here. Um, the French Connection, Buddy Russo, the sidekick uh, cop partner to um, this year's lead actor winner, Gene Hackman, who plays Popeye Doyle, who we will get to in a little bit. Um, Buddy and Popeye um, do some pretty shitty things to, quote unquote, clean up the streets of New York. But are they the ones who need cleaned up? Who knows? I don't know. We'll talk about it. But there's a heroin shipment coming in. Um there's a connection who is French. Uh, no, but let's uh, let's talk about it. What do you think? So I think Scheider's pretty good here in the French connection. Um, you know, he's Roy Scheider is like so definitively 1970s, more so than maybe any other actor. And like what I mean by that is it seems like all the movies anyone knows him for came out between... 1970 1979 like i feel like you'd be hard pressed to find someone who could come up with anything he did after all that jazz without you know a google search in under you know a minute um and i think he he defined that decade in so many ways and uh i think the french connection is a really good um introduction for that uh he it's kind of tough for him because he's sharing so much of his time with Gene Hackman, who we'll get to in a little bit, who is creating, um, you know, in many ways, a career-defining performance. And Popeye Doyle, someone who's always drawing attention to himself. And um, someone like Roy Scheider uh, really needs to be smart in order to stand out and not be um, suppressed as... um, Hackman's scene partner. And I think Roy Scheider does that really well. Um, even when Popeye Doyle is, you know, being his larger than life uh, belligerent self, I don't find that Scheider ever really becomes hidden or um, withdrawn. He's a very steady force um, next to um, this huge looming presence. Um, known as Popeye Doyle. So um, I think that's a real testament to Roy Scheider. I'm not sure how many people could do it as seemingly effortlessly as he does. Um, it seems like it comes very natural to him. And that's maybe just, you know, his 1970s grit. Um, but um, I think he's doing an admirable job here. I kind of dig it. Yeah, there's a sexiness to Roy Scheider that I appreciate. It's it's that sexiness that, and I don't know if this will make any sense. Maybe it'll make sense. Maybe, I don't know. It's me after all. But, you know, I have this love that I've spoken up before about gritty 1970s, 1980s New York. Like, there's something so attractive about New York City to me at that time, especially when it was so dirty and, like, I don't know. There's something about it. It's just very attractive to me. And for some reason, you are... Well, you are correct in saying, like, Roy Scheider is the 70s, but, like, Roy Scheider has this, like, gritty sexiness to him at that time. And the way that man smoked a cigarette, putting my bun up right now, let me tell you. Holy shit. That man, mwah. But this performance is really good. Um, This is... 
there's something about the last picture show, and I remember mentioning this in the picture director episode that is like watching a documentary. And I love that that style that Friedkin does here because it really makes New York at that time pop. But it also allowed Buddy Russo and Popeye Doyle to feel like real people. You know, I mentioned and when we just talk about Richard Jekyll, there's that line of where his, you know, his wife is like, are the kids asleep? Let's have sex. He's like, yeah. And it's just, it's a real, really genuine, real reaction. Scheider is doing this from point from point A to point C, the moment he's on screen to the ending, you know, there's the scene where, uh, and it, I always forget that there, that, uh, who, wait, who, who is it? Is a Popeye walk into, to, uh, Buddy's apartment and Buddy is handcuffed or is it Popeye's handcuffed? It's Buddy's handcuffed, right? Uh, see now I'm, now I'm not sure. Now I'm second guessing myself. Right, I'm second guessing myself. I think it's Popeye, and it's near the beginning, where, where he's walking down what seems to be like a YMCA, like fucking hallway, but it turns out it's an apartment in New York City, and that's how a lot of those pre-war apartments still are in New York. And there's just something so beautifully captured here on this, on this film, and. Scheider is such a big part of that beauty because he really makes it feel like I'm just watching real people. And that is what acting is. That's what acting should be. It's so good. Um, you know, of course the characters, and we'll talk about Popeye even more in, in a bit, but like these characters are not really good people. I mean, they, they'll do whatever they have to do to get the job done. And so, you know, you can't forgive the characters, but you can appreciate what the actors are doing. And I completely get this nomination. I'm actually very surprised that yet again, I don't think I mentioned it, that there were no precursors for any of for for Roy here. The only one who got any precursors were Ben Johnson. So, you know, it it's just interesting how 1971 supporting actors really played it through here to get to the Oscar stage. Um it's really good. I like this a lot. Yeah, I do too. Um, Roy Scheider, there's just, I don't know. I just can't think of another actor to even like compare him to his just, he has a very distinct presence that really worked for what was going on in film and in the evolution of acting in the 1970s. Um, yeah, I think he's so solid here. Um, and kind of like with Jeff Bridges in Last Picture Show, you can kind of see the the actor that he would go on to become. Of course, he didn't have the lasting star power that Bridges would, you know, through the 80s and the 90s and even, you know, into today. But you can definitely tell um, that Roy Scheider is going to be, um, you know, a, a very important uh, presence in the films to come. So I think he's, he's pretty good here. This is a really good outing for him. Very much so. And before we get to Ben Johnson, um, because, you know, a lot of people, you know, again, we, we've talked about this before, especially in the sixties when we did those episodes and, you know, the seventies are really where like the precursors start to play a part into who gets the nomination and the, and the role 
or I'm sorry, and then the Oscar nomination. Um, and the biggest one that people look at, even though especially now it's changing, especially after last year, is the Golden Globes. So to give you an idea, because we're gonna, I'm gonna bring up Ben Johnson here in a second. The Golden Globes that year for supporting actor, Ben Johnson wins for the Last Picture Show. Then you had Tom Baker for Rasputin and Nicholas and Alexandra, who you even mentioned in the picture episode. You're like, I could have, I would have done that for him. You had Art Garfunkel for Carnal Knowledge, Paul Mann for Fiddler on the Roof, and then uh, Jean-Michael Vincent for Going Home. So even then, there was an idea of like, where do these four spots go? And it's so interesting to see where the four spots went from the precursor people to Oscar. In a weird way, I kind of wish we would go back to that because I think that's so cool. Um, you know, the the seasons were like, every award show is the same like five or six people over and over again get so boring to me now of course i'm sort of removed from the award stuff a little bit because outside of this podcast as you know you all know i don't really partake in the prognosticating and the predicting and all that but i think as a viewer it'd be so cool having absolutely no idea who's going to show up on nomination morning um I can't, sometimes I wonder if all of these precursor bodies, if they all got together and came up with their nominations at the same time without knowing who all the other people are voting for, how differently things would be. Because a lot of these precursors are following who came before them. So it kind of makes me wonder if they were forced to think independently how different the landscape would be. Yeah, I say bring back BAFTA bring back the thing with BAFTA, do them after the Academy Awards, Golden Globes, when they get their stuff together, I mean, everyone should just do things different. Let's make it fun. Let's make it fun. That's it. But I agree with you. Um, Moving on to Ben Johnson. Okay. All right. Let Let us end this category with this year's winner, Ben Johnson as Sam the Lion in The Last Picture Show. This is his sole nomination, and then he wins for a sole nom. Again, uh, precursors. BAFTA win in 1973 for supporting actor. So he was not the 1971 supporting actor winner, because, again, remember, BAFTA got a lot of these, like, a year to two to three years after the fact. Wins the Golden Globe, wins National Board of Review, and wins the New York Film Critics Association Award for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, the National Society of Film Critics give him a nomination for supporting, and that's the only precursor he had where he did not win it. Um, okay, Ben Johnson plays Sam the Lion. He is essentially the town. Like, he's the town owner of the pool, the billiard hall, the picture house. Um, he is Sonny's... Um, What's the, what's the name of that person that you look up to? Like, Sonny's hero, pretty much. He guides Sonny. There's the big fishing scene. There's a lot going on with his character for having less than 10 minutes of screen time. So when I say Ben Johnson and Sam the Lion is the town, he's just, I feel like, the presence of this Texas town. That's what I mean by that. But, um, Brandon, what are your thoughts? So I really like this one. Um Sam the Lion is sort of the lifeblood of this community, and he sort of represents a lot of things. Um, This town and its ways are kind of dying. Um, Times are changing, 
people are leaving. The, the country is on, you know, the brink of war. Um, and basically the town and the people in it are kind of turning to dust and are kind of soon to be forgotten. And some of what the movie is about is accepting that um, or choosing to, I don't know, take a different path. Uh, and the casting of Ben Johnson makes so much sense here, considering how he represented um, old Hollywood, particularly, you know, the Western genre, which is so like definitively Hollywood. Um, so having him here as this uh, presence of the old ways makes a lot of sense. Um, and there is so much gravity to his character. Um, he brings so much pathos to that monologue he has by, um, by the water about, you know, uh, the romance from years past, um, bygone regrets and things like that, and just an acceptance of how things turned out and how things are going to be. Um, there's just like, I feel like when I watch him, I'm, I can see the years. I can see the history of this person and what he means to this town and to the youth of it, like Sonny, and what it's going to mean when he's gone. Um, and, you know, of course, we kind of get a little taste of that. Um, but I don't know, it just, there's something really special about this performance. Um, I think Ben Johnson was so perfectly cast, considering his own history and what he meant to an industry that was very much changing. Because, um, you know, the studio system is on its way out and movies aren't really being made in the way that they were. And movies are exploring things that for the longest time were very taboo and not allowed. And um, he's kind of that, that old guard who's on his way out and he knows it. And um, I don't know, it's a... It's a difficult one for to talk about without getting too, you know, monotonous. But um, it's a it's a performance that I really feel. So so I, I really admire it. So apparently Tex Ritter was pretty much cast in this role, and Ben Johnson became like an eleventh hour change. So with the love that the fans of this film and the academy awards because ben johnson seems to be most people's winners i would say nine out of ten in this category and um i always found that interesting um about that and i'll get to why here in a moment but uh i'd be very interested to you know with with you saying he's so perfectly cast you know we always talk about what could have been's and it's I would be interested to know if another actor would have such an impact 
with the way people speak of Ben Johnson, the way you just did now, if like Tex had actually done this role. Now, to my feelings on this, this is also another nomination I don't understand. Um, again, I am not a fan of this movie. I don't understand the the spell this movie has on people. Um, it, for me, it just plays very basic. And, you know, it is what it is. Not hating people that love it at all. With that said, I... I can't for the love of me ever remember that he's in this film. Like I am always like, wait, who won 71? And then I have to like rethink like who is in this lineup. And Ben Johnson is always the fifth person who I'm remember in this lineup. He has such little to do. So it's, that's why when I introduced his character just now is like, he essentially is the town because he's like the bloodline of all these businesses. Um, when I think of this movie, I think, well, of course women, but I think the women, you know, I think uh, Eileen Brennan, I think Ellen Burstyn, I think Cloris Leachman. Um, I actually remember Jeff Bridges's character better. And he, and, and you and I agree, like he, he's just kind of there. I don't ever remember like a certain moment Ben Johnson has in this movie to warrant a nomination, let alone a win. So I, I, this one, this one always makes me scratch my head. This lineup, now that we've gotten through the five of them has always been like a two person race in my head with three of them. I'm not sure why they're there. So that's just me. Um, love that he has his fans though. Again, nine, nine times out of 10, people will say Ben Johnson deserved to win this. So, um, we'll see what happens, you know? I had never read that, uh, he was a replacement for Tex Ritter. I had read that he had turned the role down a few times and had to be convinced to take it. Maybe Ritter was in contention, um, because Johnson wasn't interested for a while. But um, regardless of whether he was, you know, always the shoe-in or whether he was, um, you know, a substitute, he ended up bringing something very special to this role. And um, putting him in the part, I think, was um, a really solid decision, regardless of how he got there, because he brings something really, really sad and also really profound to this role, which I think was absolutely essential considering the themes the movie's exploring about the 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 death of the old ways and um the sort of duality between timelessness and timeliness but um yeah there's just a lot going on here that um what johnson's doing and what bogdanovich is bringing are really coming together in a really um really interesting way for me so so i dig it maybe someday the movie will just click with you maybe it won't and that's fine but uh i don't know maybe maybe someday you never know you never know and what would that be called growth right exactly um well before we move on there's something you have to say all right so before we move on to the leads uh, we have a little sound clip. Uh, we reached out to some past guests and some fans of the show, asking them uh, about what they what they like about the show, what they'll miss, 
uh, basically just fishing for compliments and things like that. And uh, the first one we received was from fan favorite Andrew Carden. So here is what he had to say about Academy Queens. Hey, you two. It's Andrew Carden. I can't believe this is it. This is the end. I can't believe the Academy Queens podcast is about to bid farewell. You know, it's been one of my favorite podcasts in recent years, and I'm going to miss it terribly. And I think if I had to pick out one thing in particular that I'm going to miss and that I'm probably not going to encounter on another podcast, it's going to be any time that Joey said, you know, who would have been great in this role? Karen Black. I don't think anybody adores Karen Black quite to the extent that Joey does. And boy, I'm going to miss you too. It's been quite a journey and I will always revisit your old podcasts and enjoy them. So hope you guys are doing well. All right. So that was a very lovely message from Andrew. And uh, without further ado, we'll get on to our leading men. They were... Mr. Peter Finch in Sunday, Bloody Sunday, a Joseph Janney production, United Artists. Gene Hackman in The French Connection, D'Antoni Productions, 20th Century Fox. Walter Matthau in Koch, a Koch Company production, ABC Pictures, Presentation, Cinerama. George C. Scott in The Hospital, a Howard Gottfried, Patty Chayefsky production, in association with Arthur Hiller, United Artists. Topo in Fiddler on the Roof, a Mirish Cartier production, United Artists. All right, let's start with our winner for the year. We have Gene Hackman winning for The French Connection. This is his fifth, or sorry, this is his third of five nominations and his first of two wins. Um, going into this, he was pretty much a force as he takes the Golden Globe, the National Board of Review, the New York Film Critics, uh, and he ties with Walter Matthau for the Kansas City Film Critics and he's nominated with the National Society of Film Critics. In The French Connection, Gene Hackman plays Jimmy Popeye Doyle, an alcoholic and bigoted New York narcotics officer trying to catch heroin smugglers who have a connection to France. So how do you feel about Gene Hackman in The French Connection? This character is so vile. He is... He is a villain. He is not a good person. He, in his heart, feels like he's doing the right thing, and yet he's not. And yet you find yourself weirdly rooting for him to succeed, but also his, his demise, and I love that. And I don't think that anyone could have done this like Gene Hackman, although apparently... There is a sequel of sorts or like a TV movie with Ed O'Neill in the role of Popeye Doyle called Doyle from 1986. Candy Clark is in it, too. Um, be, I'd be interested to see that, to see how his Popeye Doyle is. Apparently his is also really good. That's obviously before his Al Bundy days. Um, but I think Hackman is really interesting here. You know, his... Um, we won't get to talk about it, but his his performance that he got 
nominated for a year before this for I Never Sing for My Father. He is so good in that, and he is such a category fraud. He's in the supporting category when he's a lead there. If he was in the lead, I think I would have given him the win. And I, the, the, after watching, because I watched this years ago for the first time, and then I just watched I Never Sing for My Father for the first time maybe two or three years ago, and I genuinely didn't know if Hackman could be topped in a French Connection performance, and yet he did it the year before. So the fact that he did two back-to-back performances that were so good, I'm like, bravo, sir. Um, you know, again, he's a gross character. He's he's not good, but Hackman does really good work here. I see why he wins this, because it's really fucking great. Um, again, though, that's just the French Connection. There's that greediness to it. I appreciate that. And I want more... I want more movies to be that gritty. Um, I think, you know, we got a pretty good um, try at it this last year with Judas and the Black Messiah. Obviously very different uh, material, but like the style of the film could have been there. Um, I, you know, saw like the beginning when we meet Lakeith, you know, there was a little, um, I remember watching that for the first time. I'm like, wow, this has like a French connection feel to it. And then it goes the complete opposite way. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting that all these years later that even the influence from that movie is still found in films today. And I think Hackman's performance stands the test of time. It's a good, good, good nomination, good win. Um, but what about you? What do you think? So I think it's somewhat fair to say that Gene Hackman, in a lot of ways, um, invented what we would go on to call the anti-hero, um, which became so prevalent. Um, like 15 years ago when we started getting characters like Tony Soprano and Don Draper and Walter White popping up on television, Dexter. Um, Because Popeye Doyle, I see where you're coming from with how he's a villain um, because he is um, a, a, a despicable kind of person, but we're also presented with him as our hero um, he is trying to stop these uh, drug smugglers from bringing in all this stuff uh, from France and making the streets worse. But he does it in uh, some of the most troubling ways, uh, wielding his power as a police officer in um, very uh, irresponsible and uh, dangerous uh, ways like that car chase. It wasn't until I watched it uh, for you know the most recent time that it occurred to me that he could have killed dozens of people uh, while in pursuit of these villains. Like there's people like on the sidewalks and crossing the street and just the other drivers on the road, but he doesn't give a shit because catching those bad guys is more important to him than the lives of innocent people on the street. Um, and yet we kind of just go with it like it took me a couple of watches for that to really like consciously click for me um so we're given this police officer character uh and we're just kind of supposed to run with it um it makes me wonder like i'm sure there's people out there who watch it and uh they see absolutely nothing wrong with what he's doing because it's you know it's in the name of justice and cleaning up the streets and that's a troublesome conversation right there 
But Hackman, uh, that's just the power of his performance because he is bringing so much dimension to this person who, you know, a much lesser actor could have played in a two-dimensional sort of way. But there is a, a bit of, I don't know, I don't want to say principle, not really principle, but um, there's uh, a drive to him uh, that he will do whatever it takes, that sort of uh, loose cannon type of cliche that you'd go on to see so often, like in the 80s and 90s in those cop movies. So Gene Hackman, in a lot of ways, is sort of the blueprint for a lot of what would come um, in the years following, while giving an absolutely tour de force performance. And I really dig it. I can see why he wins this. Like, I agree with you. Um, this is a, a performance that commands your attention. And I can see why it was so groundbreaking for its time. And I think it still plays well today. So um, I'd say the performance aged very well. Uh, you know, the movie tackles some really difficult subject matter. I wouldn't say that the movie itself is problematic, but it, 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 um, it contains or it explores problematic issues. Um, in an interesting sort of way. So I think it's a really, really cool little performance that Mr. Gene Hackman is delivering here. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's, um, there was this thing in the late sixties and seventies. And, and I think it's why the seventies are my favorite decade for film where it, things didn't feel Hollywoodized. Um, you know, the studio system was breaking. A lot of independent films were breaking through. This was a whole new era for revolutions and civil rights and all this stuff was happening in, in the world. And there was this point where actors weren't afraid in their dirty films to get dirty. And I miss that. We need more of that back. Um, things have gotten too pretty. And I just couldn't imagine this being made today in the same vein without someone who is so similar to Gene Hackman. But I can't put my finger on who it would be to deliver what he's doing and what Roy Scheider is doing because they are so genuine to the time period. And I'm at a loss of thought of who who could deliver that. So if I'm at a loss of thought for once and who could play this, that's saying something. Yeah, they're so, these performances are so, I know I've used this word a couple times, they're so definitive of the 70s. Like, like this was the perfect time for these performances and these films to come out. Um, and it's almost, it's almost fruitless to even consider who would do it today because it, today isn't, 1971 and even if someone could recreate them it wouldn't have the same meaning that it did then because the time is so different so um i think that just goes to show how how well done this movie is on so many different levels including the acting absolutely next we have peter finch nominated for sunday bloody sunday this is his first of two nominations. Um, he wins the BAFTA this year, and he also wins uh, with the National Society of Film Critics, and he's uh, nominated with the Globes and with the New York Film Critics. 
In Sunday, Bloody Sunday, Peter Finch plays Daniel Hirsch, a lonely doctor carrying on a clandestine affair with a young artist who is also seeing someone else. So how do you feel about Peter Finch in Sunday, Bloody Sunday? I This is a movie that I enjoy more and more when I get to rewatch it. There's something... There's something about it that also just fits the time period. You know, England was going through its own debacle at that time. Um, I mean, every country always is. But, you know, England was going through hard economic times in the 70s. There was a lot going on society-wise. Homosexuals, homosexuality just in, uh, prior to this film, maybe by like four years or so, five years was just decriminalized so this type of material was kind of new to the english society you know it was always on the dl but now it's out in the open and the whole concept of this like love triangle with this bisexual man who has a male and a female lover is so interesting for that for this again this time period you know glenda jackson is of course doing her thing and you know she is wonderful in the movie and finch matches that you know you have a lot of times where you're you have a film that is going to be in contention for lead and um lead actor and actress where there you know people will say well do they play off each other too well or is one outshining the other? Are they going to get completely ignored? Like what, you know, it doesn't happen here. Finch holds his own. Glenda holds her own. And I think that's what makes it so strong. You know, Peter Finch obviously would go on to win posthumously for network. And that is a whole other conversation. Um, But, you know, what really sealed the film or not the film, but his performance for me is the simplest thing. It's when his lover shows up at the house, Finch takes a client that is ending her session leaves. He spins around and sees him standing in the kitchen and just gives that smile. And Finch, uh, as we know, was a straight actor. We don't know his personal life. You know, he did have his wife, but you you could have never, if I did not know that, the pure love he has for this man shined through like he had been seeing men his whole life. And sometimes you can't act that type of love. And it's such a beautiful performance. And it's just, it's wonderful. What about you? I find this to be a very sneaky performance because um, uh, Daniel Hirsch is someone who is living in secret. Um, what he feels, um, you know, his heart and mind is not only taboo, but was criminalized um, until somewhat recently um, over in Britain. And so um, I don't recall exactly when it became no longer a criminal act. But um, even if that's lifted, there's still that stigma there and that deep um, 
shame that comes with all of that. And um, I think you can see that in him when he's he's at that one party. I think actually I think it's a bar mitzvah. And, um, you know, a woman asks him why he doesn't why he's not married. Like, why hasn't he found a, a wife yet? And he kind of has that uh, reaction. Oh, I just haven't found the right person yet which I feel like is the go-to answer that so many of us have before we come out. Like, I swear, every time I went home for the holidays, someone would ask me if I had a girlfriend. And that was pretty much my answer. Like, oh, I just haven't found anyone yet. I mean, and someone would always chime in, oh, he has very high standards as a way of just ending the conversation. Um, and so that moments like that really resonate in this film um there's also there's a there's a time where he has this um interaction with his neighbor like his he gets his neighbor's paper delivered to his stoop or something and he's going to deliver the paper and there's a jogger who jogs by and he has this very um very sneaky but distinct way of looking at the jogger running by in such a way that if he had to quickly avert his eyes, he could, and it would not have looked like he was ogling the the jogger to his neighbor, um, which is something that I also was kind of masterful at. I feel like a lot of us who are closeted to become masterful at this way of looking at people that we're attracted to, but also having this sort of backup plan in our minds of being able to to pass off what we were actually looking at or that we were looking at something else, quote unquote. Um, so I think he has these really tiny moments that um, really sing for me. And I just feel his profound loneliness. Because, um, you know, he's an, he's an older man who just wants to live, but he, he can't for, you know, a lot of reasons. And um, there's a, a certain moodiness to this character that I really feel, but it's not like in your face with it, you know? Like he's not really, Peter Finch isn't trying to convince you that this is a sad person. He just simply is sad. Um, and I don't know, I really dig it. I find myself gravitating toward characters like that. So this is a pretty good example of one of those for me. See, I had a feeling, I was like, Maybe I'm speaking too soon, obviously. <laughs> but I'm like, the Peter Finch, it, the connection, I, I, yep, there it is. Did you have uh, anything else on Peter Finch? No, uh, not on this one, nope. All right. Well, next we have Walter Matthau, uh, nominated for Koch. This is his second of three nominations, having previously won for The Fortune Cookie. Um, going into this, his only little precursor is tying with Gene Hackman at the Kansas City Film Critics, and he's nominated at the Globes in Comedy Musical. In Koch, Walter Matthau plays Joseph Kocher, who um, embarks on a cross-country road trip, basically to avoid getting put in a nursing home uh, by his son. So how do you feel about Walter Matthau and Koch? Um, uh, Malcolm McDowell would like to speak to the manager of nominations because, 
he's still trying to figure out how he got bumped for this for a clockwork orange brandon what is this what is this i do not like this movie or performance either um okay i think i may have said it i think i said it when we talked about pete and tilly I do not like Walter Matthau. I don't know if that's a hot take among film lovers. I do not like him. Um, I think he's fine in something like Grumpy Old Men. I feel like that works for him. Everything else, pretty much, that I've ever seen him in, he really just rubs me the wrong way as a performer. I get the impression that he's a very selfish performer. Like, Something that I find myself saying a lot on this show is I, I, I find myself remarking when someone seems selfless, when they are putting the work and the film and their castmates before themselves in order to make the film better as a whole. Walter Matthau reads to me as a viewer as someone who thinks the film revolves around him and they're just going to shoot whatever it is that he happens to be doing or saying at any given moment, and I really fucking hate that. (laughs) I don't know if that's just me, though. I, first of all, who knew that that Harry and Tonto was a remake uh, a couple years later? Yeah, right? Seriously. Um, What? What? The like the academy has done some stupid shit, but to even put like <laughs> I remember okay so do you remember in twenty fifth I think it was twenty fifteen yeah twenty fifteen when Cleveland that January had that polar vortex storm that like wiped us out for like two weeks yeah it was like negative bajillion like all all the pipes in Cleveland froze like no one worked yada yada yada. I remember sitting in my Ohio City apartment and I had because there was that that library in Ohio City over by Le Petit. And that's where we get all my Oscar movies and like, you know, order everything, which is a beautiful library, by the way. Beautiful library. And um, I remember getting this and I I popped popcorn and I got myself a cream soda because that's like if I drink pop, that's my go to. So I put my cream soda down. I put my popcorn down. I had my dog at the time. I get on my couch. We're all snuggled in. And I put on Koch and maybe 20 minutes into it. I'm like, what is this nonsense garbage? Like the way he speaks, the way he's walking, just his presence. I was like. I knew Walter Matthau at that point as being Mr. Wilson in Dennis the Menace, but like this was like the, what is happening here? I agree with every <laughs> everything you just said about him, and all I can think about in, is hearing you say that, and then thinking of poor Elaine May in A New Leaf because that's exactly what he fucking did there. Mm. And I'm like, ooh, justice for Elaine May. But this is just embarrassing. This is embarrassing. Sorry to the Walter Matthau stands of the world. So we can just say now he's our number one. Yes. Yeah. Our my runaway winner. No one. No one beats Koch. The double, 
double lead actor winner from Academy Queens, Walter Matthau, Matthau, Jesus, Walter Matthau. See, Christoph, you know, Christoph actually said that he's like, I almost guessed you, Joey, would would pick this. I'm like, no. (laughs) The weird thing, though, about this performance. um, So I don't care for Walter Matthau as a performer generally, but there was something about this character who felt very familiar to me. So I'm willing to offer him a little bit of credit. There's something that seems very reminiscent of something in what he's doing, but I still can't fucking stand it. (laughs) So (laughs) there's a bit of a double-edged sword to that. Malcolm McDowell was robbed for this. Yes. Malcolm McDowell did not beat a woman to death with a giant penis to be snubbed for Koch. Trash. Moving on. <laughs> or no, he, he bludgeons the old man with the penis, isn't it? The big no. sculpture. Is it the woman? It's Wait. the woman with the cats. Okay. Okay. See, I remember the sculpture more than the person that was killed with it, naturally. Well, penis. Right. Yes. So uh, next, we have George C. Scott, nominated for The Hospital. This is his fourth of four nominations, having won for Patton the year before. Going into this, he uh, gets no wins, but he's nominated at the Globes, and he will be nominated at BAFTA the next year. And in The Hospital, George C. Scott plays Dr. Herbert Bach, an existential chief of medicine whose hospital is experiencing a string of possible serial murders, question mark. So how do you feel about George C. Scott in the hospital? What is this? I, okay, I to this day don't know what this movie is about. I have seen this twice now. I saw this once back in my blockbuster days that I've talked about before. And I don't understand it then, and I don't understand it now. It feels like Patty Chayefsky literally wrote the script over a weekend. Like, he just was on a shit ton of drugs and put so many plots and themes into one hospital. And then, like, it's weird because some of these descriptions for this movie is, like, a serial killer stalking down, like, this hospital. So then, like, some people think it's a horror movie, and then other people, it's, like, a satire comedy, and then it's, like, it's a drama, and it's a medical drama. I'm, like, what is this movie? Um, I don't like this movie. I think it's all over the place. I think there's too, there's, it's that saying, like, there's too many cooks in a kitchen, but really it's just Patty Chayefsky. Like, that's the whole saying, by the way. <laughs> just, but it's, no, it's like, I don't know what is going on here. Um, I think George C. Scott is doing his thing. I'm very surprised that the Academy gave him another nomination post-Patton. Um I mean, they did it with Marlon Brando again down the road when he denied his Oscar win. So it does show you that the Academy is forgiving to an extent um, that it can be about the performance, not the politics, I guess. But um, I think George C. Scott is good. I think it is an interesting nomination. I think, especially for 1971, feels like a left field nomination for them. 
Um, I, I guess I'm also asking if Malcolm McDowell is looking for the manager, though, because of Clockwork Orange. But now I'm interested to hear what you say, because I just, okay, this is nominated, sure. So this is quite a film. Um, I had never seen it prior to watching it for this episode. And um, it it is kind of a lot. Um, I wonder how how it plays on rewatch because it, I understand that it's meant to be a satire and I can see I can see the elements of satire there. But then I'm also I also find myself getting confused because sometimes it seems just a little too serious at times. And then there's this weird string of mysterious deaths who are, I guess, it's kind of serial killer-like. So there's like a slasher element almost to what's going on, but also not really. It's a really strange film, and um, I, I would like to sip whatever Patty Chayefsky was drinking when he wrote it, because cause I need to write something weird, I guess. And... George C. Scott, I think, is, I think he's good here, but it's hard to evaluate the performance, for me anyway, because I find it so difficult to, to nail down exactly what the movie is, so it's difficult for me to say exactly how well George C. Scott is matching and elevating the film. I think he's doing his damnedest. I don't think he's bad. I'm just so confounded by this film. I wonder, I, I genuinely wonder if it will, if it will click on a rewatch. Maybe this is, you know, me just coming at this movie fresh, um, knowing very little about it going in. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I guess, in the middle on this one. I don't really know what to make of it. The craziest thing about this for me is that Patty Chayefsky wins the original screenplay nominated or screenplay Oscar for this. Wild. What? <laughs> um, here was his competition. Uh, the writers Elio Petri and Ugo Piro for Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, Andy Lewis and Dave Lewis for Clute. Herman Rauscher for Summer of 42, and Penelope Guillon for Sunday, Bloody Sunday. By the way, that was Penelope's only credited screenwriting gig. Very interesting. And then they give it to Patty Chayefsky for the hospital. Um, I haven't seen Investigation. Oh, you should. It's so good. Is it? Yeah. I... For me, this is between Summer 42 and Sunday Bloody Sunday, but I just can't believe that Patty Chavsky wins for this. Yeah. Um, that is, maybe that could have just been a love for Chayefsky, you know, how those things tend to work out. Um, Summer of 42 is the one that I have not seen. But um, Sunday Bloody Sunday, uh, assuming, you know, I'm a weird person who thinks you can't quite judge a script based on the movie. But I can imagine that Sunday Bloody Sunday is a very nuanced script based on what we're given. And Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion is very, very good. So I'm wagering that the script is also quite 
good. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's funny to me that the hospital ends up winning. Yeah, make it make sense. I cannot. But you're right. You're right. He's not bad at all. It's just the movie over the movie's ridiculousness overshadows his performance. Yeah, I find it so hard to decide whether or not. I, I well, I'm not gonna say he, he's not bad. I find it hard to assess how good he is because I am just so perplexed by the movie itself. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, I it. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful gowns, big gowns, <laughs> lovely. Yeah. Gowns. Maybe in a few years I'll I'll revisit the hospital maybe i'll see it streaming somewhere and decide well i'm gonna figure this movie out and then it'll finally click but as of right now i'm just kind of kind of puzzled absolutely absolutely apparently though too there's this movie around called the hospital 2 but it's never mentioned if it's a sequel to the hospital as i can't find another movie called the hospital outside of this like south korean film that came out in 2020 and the hospital 2 i think came out in like 2012 so apparently there's a sequel to the hospital out there somewhere okay maybe i'm <laughs> i don't fucking know but i swear that i've seen it okay that's well, all. <laughs> that's cool <laughs> Um, so our, our fifth and final lead actor is Topol, uh, nominated here for Fiddler on the Roof. This is his first and only nomination, and going into this, he is our Golden Globe for comedy slash musical winner. And that's uh, his only, I guess, major precursor, you could say. Um, in Fiddler on the Roof, he plays Tevya, a Jewish peasant with traditional values, trying to marry off his daughters, whose... Um, dealing with the changing of the times and some growing threats of uh, anti-Semitism on the rise. So how do you feel about Topol in Fiddler on the Roof? This performance is divine. It is so beautiful and it is so timeless and it it's one of those performances that even if you're not a fan of the musical itself you love this performance because it's so feel good even when topple is completely having these moments of self-doubt and what does his faith teach him compared to what his daughters need or his daughters want and how does it affect him? Um, you know, there's a lot going on for the role of Tevia. Um, for an actor to do the role of Tevia, you really have to, you really have to pull from every emotion in your box because I have seen on stage actors do Tevia in one emotion the whole way through. And that could be, well, I'm sorry, two emotions. It's either joy or anger. And while you have these big numbers like tradition to introduce Anna Tevka and Tevya 
and Golda and Fiedka and all these characters that Shalom Aleichem have, has, has, you know, wrote eons ago, you know, you're telling the story as Tevya, you're the narration for the first 15, 20 minutes of this musical. And so you have to tap into happiness and joy and sorrow and greed all in one song. So when you get to the other half of the film after, uh, is it Sunrise Sunset? No, the second half of the movie after um, the uh, intermission is usually around the wedding. So yeah. So the, uh, right after the um, the constable, you know, fucks with the wedding is usually the intermission. So the sec- the first half of the movie is so bright and the second half is so dark. So, but, you know, you, you have to then pull the darkness into that performance for um, when Tevia's daughter leaves to go to si- uh, Siberia or when they get kicked out of Anatevka, you then have to use not just anger, but sadness and angst and pity and hatred. And so the character and performance is very tricky to do. And Topol is the cream of the crop when it comes to it. I have I have witnessed Danny Burt, not in person, but I've witnessed Danny Burstein's performance. Um, and then I have witnessed uh, local performances and I have witnessed um oh god what was his name the first guy who played him on stage uh oh it'll come to me god that's bad um but no one has really ever done what Topol has done and I think that's because Topol allows himself to be silly when he needs to be silly and um nervous when he needs to be nervous and he doesn't play it off like like Tevia is this big know-it-all guy and I think that can be really messy with this role and um I just think it's great I think there isn't a dull moment here this there's a reason why this show and this performance has lasted so long and I think even though Gene Hackman is great there is a moment, I think, with the zeitgeist of world pop culture and people who know Fiddle on the Roof where it's like, wait a minute, he didn't win for that? Odd. Um, it's wonderful. What are your thoughts? You know, I think very few leading men carry their film in quite the way that Topple does here. Because, um, I mean, this is a rather large uh, production. This is a three-hour musical, a uh, lot of cast members, a lot of songs. And I think he never really falters. Um, the entire weight of this show is on his shoulders, but he does it in such an effortless way that you never really consciously think of it that way. Um, He has so much energy and vigor that I'm somewhat envious because I don't think I will ever possess the amount of liveliness 
that he puts into every scene. Um, I mean, like I said earlier, when we talked about um, his supporting uh, co-star, this is not a movie that's really personal to me. I didn't really grow up with it. I only came to it somewhat recently when we started talking about this year. Um, So I come at it with a slightly different uh, perspective. But um, that being said, it still cannot be denied that he's doing something really special here. Um, I mean, he is kind of synonymous with this role for a reason. Um, Other people have played this part, of course. Um, This is a much beloved show that has been going on and been reproduced for decades. But I feel like every, I have a feeling that every good performance of this role inevitably becomes compared to Topol um, simply because he he did what he did um, in this film. So um, even though I don't have the, um, it's not part of my DNA, this movie, um, I still think he is quite stunning in the role. Yeah, and um, the actor who I was thinking of is the one who originated it, Zero Mostel. Um, even he played it first before Topple, and he's known on Broadway as the original uh, um, Tevia. But you are correct. Every actor who plays this role will always be compared to Topple because Topple has literally set a bar so high that no matter who plays it, will never reach it. They can only do their best. Um I know we talked about it briefly with the picture director episode, but this was announced for a remake in May of 2020, and they are still in such early pre-production that it like, I'm so curious to see how they do it because this movie is so beloved that it almost worries me, but like excited for it. Right. It's one of those movies. There's, there's people out there, who are going to love the remake regardless because that's that's their feelings toward this uh, property. And then there's people who are going to hate it regardless because it's not this one. And, you know, then you'll have your people in the middle who can be swayed. So it's going to be an interesting um, reaction uh, if and when this new version gets made and released. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's like, it's one of those things like it, even... As some, again, because I've talked about this before and I'll do it again, is like being in this show for my very first show was one of the coolest experiences ever. And I talk about the the heaviness of what it takes to play Tevia because I remember the actor, his name is Dan Corcoran, who played him, uh, played him on stage when I played Lazar. And I remember we had we had been in rehearsal for two weeks alone on the to life performance. And that's as Lazar Wolf, that's the, um, the only song that Lazar has like one-on-one or quote unquote solo. Cause he's also in sunrise sunset, but it's, you know, an ensemble piece. And we had finished like two weeks of rehearsal and we had nailed it down. And I remember talking to Dan and just being like getting the understanding from him the amount of pressure 
that he has because essentially again Tevia is in every scene every song even if he's not there his presence is there like in matchmaker and dan saying that there are were days where he felt like he was out of emotion like he had nothing left to give so the fact that like I know firsthand of through that of like what it takes to do this role and topple makes it look so easy is just like insane to me. <laughs> yeah. His, uh, his energy and the, uh, the depths of his, um, emotional range is, um, just off the charts. It's, uh, pretty remarkable. I would say. Absolutely. Do you have anything else? Um, I don't think so. Well, we got a, another message because give us compliments. Just give us compliments um, from people we've had on. Uh, but we have a, another message tonight, not just from one, but two people. We have Glenn Close and Kevin Jacobson. So take it away, people. Hi, my friends. This is Glenn Close, eight-time Academy Award nominee. Uh, just inquiring to see if my lawyers have gotten in touch for all of the slander that's been spewed against me on Academy Queens. I, I was, I was really quite shocked to hear just the. Uh, uh, Excuse me, I'm, I'm being told by my lawyer to keep quiet. Uh, um, let me give him the phone, one sec. Hey guys, Kevin Jacobson here. Just wanted to say how fun it's been listening to the two of you just go at it over the past few years. You know, there's there's not a lot of podcasts where I just immediately have to listen as soon as it's uploaded. But this was genuinely one of them. And um, I think it should probably be a testament to how great this show is that I have genuinely loved listening, even through Joey's truly irrational hatred of Glenn Close. I mean, what is the deal with that? Um, but I love all the specific takes that you guys had on people like Karen Black and Penelope Milford and the Tilly sisters, and just your love of horror performances and comedy performances. I have loved, you know, just the rankings at the end, which were so fun to to guess how the lineups would rank and how they would differ between the two of you. Um, and thank you for inviting me on a few times, which was super fun. I'll truly never forget having Julie Walters and Amy Irving at number five in those lineups, and then Joey saying that they were his winners. Um, and Brandon, one of my favorite parts of the show is your bluntness sometimes, like when Joey would just go off on a rant about something, and you would just be like, okay. Truly, it never fails to make me laugh. Um, thanks, for all the fun memories, guys, and good luck in your next adventures. And there you have that. Wasn't that something? It was, in fact, something. <laughs> I got that, and I was like, no shit. 
That was crazy. Um, all right. Shall we get to our rankings? Yes. All right. Thank you again to the wonderful Andrew Carden, Kevin Jacobson, and Ms. Glenn Close. Um, all right. Just a reminder, your supporting actor nominees of 1971 were Leonard Fry in Fiddler on the Roof, Roy Scheider in The French Connection, uh, Jeff Bridges and Ben Johnson in The Last Picture Show, and Richard Jekyll in Sometimes a Great Notion. Number five, I gotta give it to Ben Johnson. I I don't ever remember he's in this movie, and I, it just baffles me every time when I'm reminded that he's here and he won for this, and I'm like, but what did he do? So with that, I have to put Ben Johnson at five. I'm putting Jeff Bridges at number five. Um not because I think he's particularly bad or anything. I just always find whoever he's in a scene with to be more interesting. I'm always more drawn to the other person, and that's not necessarily a good thing. So um, Jeff Bridges is my number five for the last picture show. Well, I put Jeff Bridges at four, even though I also agree with you that he's like not doing anything. I remember he's there. So just for the fact that I remember he's there means he's sticking out a little bit for me in some way. So I'll give credit where credit's due and not put him last. But Bridges, you're at four. Leonard Fry is my number four. Um, I think he's pretty good here in Fiddler on the Roof. I think he's doing exactly what he needs to to match um, what he's being given. He's sort of the, there's like a yin and yang sort of thing going on between him and uh, uh topple that I think is working, but um, I guess I'm just not as interested in him as the other three, so Leonard Fry is my number four. Well, number three for me is Leonard Fry, and I just want to say, Leonard, rest in peace, bud, but for this performance, uh, luckily the the picture show boys are there because he would be number five. I just don't get this. This should have been Paul Mann. Um, Miracles of Miracles is the worst song in that show. This is... Sure, he's at three. Number three for me is going to be Roy Scheider for The French Connection. Um, I think Roy Scheider um, goes above and beyond in a lot of ways in order to stand out and not be buried um, when he's in scenes with Gene Hackman, who is just tearing it up every chance he gets. Not a lot of actors could um, stay above the surface in the way that he does. Um, So I'll give him that credit. But at the same time, it's nowhere near the work he would go on to do later. Um, So I think number three is a solid place for Roy Scheider when it comes to the French Connection nomination. All right, that leaves Richard Jekyll and Roy Scheider for me. Um, so I'm going to give number two to Roy Scheider, which means I'm giving Richard Jekyll the win. Um, Scheider, I've given the win down the line for all that jazz. So he's got one for me. Richard Jekyll, this would be his only shot. And I do think it is a worthy nomination, even though I, I love what Roy is doing more than Richard in, um, the French Connection, but there is just that ending 
last 20 minutes or 15 minutes of his character that Jekyll is pulling off that completely tore me up. And I just find that it's such an intriguing, painful, beautiful, melancholy way to go for this character in, the, in this film. And Jekyll sells the hell out of it for me. Um, so, yeah, I got to give it to him here. Jekyll is my runner up. I think he's really quite good in sometimes a great notion. Um, there's such a nice little build to that moment where he's trapped under the log. Um, you know exactly who he is and what he represents to this um, community and to this friend of his. And um, when he ultimately submerges and dies, um, you, f you really feel it. Um, because he's putting in the work to create this really grounded and real person so much so that when he's gone it it feels like um a piece of the movie is missing and that's a real testament to him but um ben johnson is my winner here um i i, I really get something out of this performance um he's the heartbeat of this movie in a lot of ways and i i really dig how how this character works on so many different levels when it comes to the writing and the acting and the directing and everything and how he's really just like the rug that ties this room together. And um, I think Johnson brings a real gravitas and um, I don't know, a, a, a brokenness yet strength at the same time to this character. It's really strange. Um, the different things he's able to balance. So um, I really dig it. So Ben Johnson is indeed my winner in this lineup. And there you have it. Yes. And your lead actor nominations, as a reminder, were Gene Hackman for The French Connection, Peter Finch for Sunday Bloody Sunday, Walter Matthau for Koch, George C. Scott for The Hospital, and Topple for Fiddler on the Roof. And Walter Matthau is number five for me for Koch. It's a no thank you from me. Uh, it's a fuck no from me, too. Good. Um, <laughs> George C. Scott's my number four uh, for the hospital. I can see this one possibly growing on me in the future once I really wrap my head around the hospital and get on its level. But as of right now, I'm 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 just too disconnected from what's going on for George C. Scott to be any higher. So he's my number four. Number four for me is also George C. Scott. There is too much happening. Patty Chayefsky recount those wins for that screenplay nomination. Um, Scott is good, but no. <laughs> Well, clutch your pearls, because Topple is my number three for Fiddler on the Roof. I think this is a tremendous performance, and I understand why it's so beloved. Um, it was clear from the jump when I started watching this movie uh, for the first time um, that he is 
uh, someone of magnificent talent, and he is in many ways perfect for this role. But um, here with my top three, it's become just, you know, a matter of hair splitting and taste, I guess. And the other two are just more to my taste. So um, Topol is my number three for Fiddler on the Roof. Well, also clutch your pearls, gays, um, because, no, uh, number three is Peter Finch. Um, he is wonderful in study, Sunday, Bloody Sunday. But as I said earlier with supporting actor, this has always been a two-way race for me um, in lead, just like in supporting. And while Finch is wonderful, I do think the Academy recognizes his better work, even though I don't personally give it to him for the win there either. But he is better down the line in network. So I think three is a pretty good spot for him. Uh, Gene Hackman is my runner-up for The French Connection. Um, this is a performance and a film that has stood the test of time for a reason. It has been imitated and ripped off time and time again, also for a reason. Um, he is a force of nature in this film. Popeye Doyle is simply iconic, and um, I'm not taking that away from him in any way. I can see why the Academy gave it to him. I can see why people today would still give it to him. But um, my personal winner is indeed Peter Finch. Um, this is just a, a cup of tea sort of win. I think he's doing some really intricate, beautiful stuff here. I really admire this film and I think he matches it and elevates it in so many different ways. And um, it's a performance that I find myself leaning into. And um, I think it's just good. So Peter Finch is my winner for Sunday Bloody Sunday. I love how your looking at your i must have looking at your whole looking at your whole um lineup uh, english is not a thing for us today sorry guys um that your winners pretty much go picture show picture show bloody bloody picture show picture show <laughs> like, they were the only two movies that were released in 1971 the only two and i love that for you um okay my runner-up uh, this year is Gene Hackman. Should be no surprise that Topple is my winner here. But also, too, like, remember, I'm not biased. I chose Nicholas and Alexander over pictures, so people thought I would take that, too, for Fiddler, but I didn't. Um, but Gene Hackman is wonderful, and just like Roy, a good second-place runner-up, Topple is magic. And this is a magical performance that deserves everything. And I will love it to the end of time. And it is just magic with a capital M. Wonderful. So Topple is my winner for lead. And Richard Jekyll is my winner for supporting. Yes. And I have Peter Finch in lead for Sunday Bloody Sunday. And Ben Johnson in supporting for Last Picture Show. And with that, that is your first episode of our farewell season. Look yes. at that. Yes, I think we're able to announce what the next one is. Can I do it this time, since you did the last one? Yeah. We are literally doing six episodes for you guys. You're having six episodes over six months, so the next one will be out in November. 
and we did very like six specific areas right so we knew that we couldn't close out this podcast without visiting another category of men and that category or, or i'm sorry that that year follows this year 1972 the year of the godfather men and cabaret and the heartbreak kid and just a year that was iconic as all hell for so many reasons from david nivens to the streaker to sashin littlefeather and marlon brando plus it gives us a chance to rewatch genie berlin and the heartbreak kid hello there you have it the men of 1972 yes we knew we could not do a farewell season and not do the men of 1972 we already did 74 which gave us you know godfather part two and all those gentlemen and uh we would be doing a disservice if uh, we did not talk about the men of Godfather Part One, and you know all the other people that were nominated as well. Absolutely, absolutely, and of course, this is going to be that episode that'll give us the Fosse versus Coppola debate. So right. there's too much to just not do this. So there right. you have it. The debate that resurfaces on Twitter like clockwork every 24 days. It just happened with Kevin on And the Runner Up Is because they were ranking the directors. <laughs> yes, and in 23 days, someone else will bring it up on Twitter and it will all happen again. <laughs> Fritz, do it. That's how that Fritz is so close to his viral tweet. It's going to happen soon. I believe yeah. in you, Fritz. So, Brandon, until next month and our next journey, um, shall we say bye? Uh, okay. All right. On the count of three, uh, we usually say something along, something, 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 goodbye. So on the count of three, we'll bid adieu. One, two, three. Adieu. adieu.